Well, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, We are in a study of the life of Abraham. And after tonight, we have two more studies to finish that series. Then we will have a work night for Summer Spectacular. And then Summer Spectacular will be among us. I'm excited about it because I'm going to try something new that I've never tried before. Uh, I'm going to preach on Elijah myself. That morning, I'm going to preach on Elijah as Summer Spectacular begins. And then all three nights, depending on which session you come to, you're going to get three uh, different sermons on Elijah. And then I'm going to keep preaching on Elijah when Summer Spectacular is over. Maybe some of our guests will come and fall in love with the story of Elijah and want to come back. And so it's going to be a great week, and I hope you'll be a part of that. And I hope, like uh, Kyle asked, you'll consider finding one way that you can serve as you come. So be opening your Bibles, please, to Genesis 21. And as you find that chapter, I'll tell you a story about a young couple. They lived out in a small little town. And they had tried and tried and tried to get pregnant and simply had not been able. And finally, uh, they went to see a a specialist in a large city some distance away and got the very discouraging news. They were not going to be able to get pregnant. And as they drove back, they decided they would go and visit their little country church pastor. They were from a small town. They went to a small country church. In fact, the pastor, to support himself, ran a gas station during the week, and he pastored on the weekend. And they went to see him and told him the uh, news they had received and asked for prayer. So he grabbed a can of three-in-one oil, anointed her head, and prayed for healing over her. And lo and behold, nine months later, She gave birth to triplets. (laughs) So when she got released from the hospital, they drove straight to that service station. And she jumped out of that car and she grabbed him and she gave him a huge hug. And then she let him go. And then she went and grabbed him and hugged him hard again. And he said, what's that all about? She said, well, the first hug was for praying that I could get pregnant. And the second hug was for using three-in-one oil instead of WD-40. Well, the people of God believe in the possibility of miracle birth. That's our story. You see, the story of Abraham hinges on the possibility of a miracle birth. And I would say the story of God's salvation does as well. But there is Another salvation story out there. In fact, one version of it claims validation through the life of Abraham. But the two stories are completely incompatible. And that, I think, is the real message of the tale of two boys. Let's read the first seven verses together first regarding Isaac. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born 
to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now we've waited a long time for this to happen. This has been the promise that has guided this whole story. But notice how it's attributed directly to God. It says, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. So right off the bat, you need to know this about Isaac. The Lord said it and the Lord did it. As in the case of Jesus, this is a birth where it's the conception that is the miracle. Not so much the delivery. Isaac was delivered just like Jesus through the womb of Mary. That in itself was a natural thing. But the conception was a supernatural thing. And even though you're watching Sarah give birth, something that women have done since the beginning of time, and everything about it appears natural, if you know this story, you know there's something much deeper going on here. In fact... Not only did God give Sarah the ability to miraculously conceive, but notice she's also, even though she's 90 years old, able to nurse. And to nurse for several years, because that was the custom, and still is the custom in the Middle East today, when you have a child. Not only that, but we'll get over to chapter 25 in a couple of weeks, and we'll see that after Sarah dies... Abraham is going to take another wife, and he's going to father more kids. And so what we're saying is that, in essence, God made two dead bodies alive again. She could nurse. He could bear more sons. Romans 4, 19, though their bodies were as good as dead, they were reproductively dead. But God made them alive. And Abraham learned that Yahweh is not bound by time. I think that's the significance for this interesting and almost uh, unnoticed little verse later in the chapter. It says, verse 33, that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Now God hasn't been called by that name yet. In scripture. But Abraham called on him by that name. Because he understood. I serve a God for whom time is not an issue. In fact the failing of Abraham's natural virility. Did not limit God. In fact it was exactly what God wanted. God's intention was that there be no doubt. That Isaac was a child and a result of a promise. And so Abraham holds in his arms then a 20-something-year-old promise made tangible. And he responded with obedience in two different ways. Number one, he circumcised that little boy. And you've got to realize now that's significant because to this point, a baby hadn't been circumcised yet. God had just given... Just a year before the command to circumcise, and grown men have been circumcised. But to our knowledge, this is the first time a brand new baby boy has gone through this. And I'm sure some people must have thought, Abraham, what in the world are you thinking? But he was being obedient. Not only that, he was submissive because he named the boy Yishak. 
That's what God all the way back in chapter 17 said he was going to name that boy. When Abraham laughed at the possibility of a boy being born and tried to talk God into giving the blessing to Ishmael. God said, all right then, you'll name him Eshach when he comes. And that was the name that Abraham gave him. And he and Sarah, they were proud of that name. They weren't embarrassed. People did laugh when they heard of the birth of Isaac. But his name is also a constant reminder that God's promises are no laughing matter. And that sets up the next part of our text regarding Ishmael. So look at verse 8 and following. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly. Because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to what Sarah tells you. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the maidservant into a nation also. Because he is your offspring early the next morning. And by the way, I think this is one of the hardest things Abraham ever did. Early the next morning. Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. And God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him. From Egypt. Now, according to Josephus, this story under consideration took place when Isaac was about three, which would make Ishmael about 17. Now, that, again, that might seem strange to our culture, but to the Middle East to this day, it's not unusual for a child to be uh, nursing all the way up through the several years of age. So, about the age of three, he's weaned. And Abraham throws a big feast. And that's when something Sarah had suspected, I think, for years got public. I I don't know about what kind of family you came from or if you can relate to this story, but I can. I only have one brother. He's about two and a half years younger than me. I was the firstborn on my mother's side. And because of... uh, some financial issues with my dad being in the Air Force and other things. For the first about nine months of my life, I actually lived with my mother's parents. They would go to the Sinclair station they ran and put me in a little basket under the desk. 
and take me home. They got extremely attached to me. So attached that when my father got out of the Air Force and he got a job with Sears in Albuquerque, and they lived in uh, just south of Waco, Texas, they came in about three years, 36 times to Albuquerque to see me. Now, that's spoiled. (laughs) They would shut down the station on Friday night, drive all night long so they could be there on Saturday and Sunday morning and get in the car and drive all the way back. So I was pretty fond of my papa and nanny because basically life was good when I was around them. One night I'm at their house in Moody, Texas, and they walk in with my mother and this little screaming thing in a blanket. No one had told me that I was about to be a brother. No one had asked my permission for this invasion into my home life. And in sin of all sins, they took this little screaming thing and put him in Papa's lap. Nobody had ever sat in Papa's lap before. So, I went and did the only thing you're supposed to do. I walked over and poked him right in the eye. (laughs) It's the first spanking my Papa ever gave me. Now, through the years, I came to decide that there was a small place in the family for my brother. But Ishmael had a harder problem. I'm sure at that feast, and they called it a great feast, so I'm sure the hundreds of people that are a part of Abraham's extended family and uh, household are at this feast. And Abraham stands up in front of everybody, and he tells them again the story of the promise and how Isaac is a special child, and he is destined for greatness in the eyes of God. And he reaffirms Isaac's status As the long hoped for heir. And you're Ishmael. And for 13 years, that's how your daddy talked about you. Because remember, up until a year ago, Abraham is still trying to tell God to let Ishmael be the promised child. So for 13 years, you've heard your daddy place his hopes on you. And now, you're on the outside looking in. And it provided the soil for the seeds of jealousy and resentment to grow. And by the way, the Hebrew verb implies that this mocking was a continual thing. In other words, apparently Ishmael was behind scenes constantly mocking his brother. But at the feast, it went public. And Sarah saw it. And she did not interpret Ishmael's actions as just teasing. She knew that he was challenging his right to preeminence. He was publicly mocking the thought that this little boy should be the heir when he was the young man and the firstborn who deserved to be. And so Sarah said, he's got to go. Now this created stress for Abraham. Because both of these boys are him. But God speaks to Abraham. and says, listen to your wife. And he instructs Abraham to send his oldest boy away. Not to camp. Not to summer school. 
send him out of the house forever. See, what Abraham didn't realize is that the two boys represented two completely incompatible ways to have a relationship with God. Isaac represented faith, but Ishmael represented flesh. Isaac represented promise. Ishmael represented performance. And Isaac's, uh, rather, Abraham's love for his oldest boy had so blurred his discernment that he could not perceive the mindset behind the mockery. But God saw it. Apparently Sarah did too. That Ishmael represented a perspective that was a threat to Isaac. And so God said, the boy must go. Now, the rest of the story shows that God didn't turn his back on Ishmael. That God cares for the outsider that the insiders often want to abandon. But still, the impression given in the text is that something much more than just sibling rivalry is going on here. Now, Paul certainly thought so. And that's where we see how this story is also our story. So I want you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 because the Holy Spirit gives us divine interpretation on the deeper meaning of the story we've just studied. A little background. Paul goes on a missionary journey. His custom would be to go to the synagogue in the towns, speak first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. But when he got up into a part of the world called Asia, specifically a part called Galatia, he starts to go to cities that don't have a strong enough Jewish presence to even go to a synagogue. They don't even have a synagogue. And it's the beginning of what I would just call blatant, aggressive, Gentile evangelism. And when word got back to Jerusalem what Paul was doing, they freaked. And some Judaizers immediately got up there to Galatia after Paul had left and said, Oh my goodness, Paul preached a truncated gospel to you. He didn't give you the whole message. He didn't tell you to be circumcised, did he? We're here to fix that. I think some people misunderstand Galatians. The issue is not, can a Gentile be saved? The issue is, can you be saved if you haven't been circumcised? Appreciate their context. Jesus was a Jew. He was the promise of the Jewish people. He spoke Hebrew. He studied Torah. He kept the law. And now you're going to tell me that people can be followers of Jesus and not be Jews? You're going to tell me that you can get to Jesus and you've never even heard of Moses? And so the issue isn't, can Gentiles become Christians? The question is, but don't you have to go to Sinai before you can get to Calvary? And so they come along and they say, Jesus plus circumcision is the real gospel. And to defend their position, they point to Abraham. Let me just tell you though. Don't get into an argument over the Old Testament with Paul. 
He comes along and says, you want to talk Abraham? Well, okay, but remember this. Abraham had two boys. And both boys were circumcised. So Paul comes up with this brilliant argument where he says, you think the issue is who's your daddy? No, the question is, who's your mama? Look at how he interprets the story, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. By the way, I'll come back to this. You know why we have legalists? Because people want them. Some people want to be under law. I'll tell you why in a minute. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons. One by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman, notice this, was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she's our mother. For it's written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles. People who've never been circumcised. He says, at that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. See, Paul sees these two boys as representing two gospels that are absolutely irreconcilable. Now, please notice there's nothing illegitimate about Ishmael's birth. But there's nothing supernatural about it either. Ishmael was the product of his father's flesh. And he represents, Paul says, all those who place their hope in what they can effectuate. And this is the foundation for all religions besides Christianity. But Paul says the result of any system where Christ is not all sufficient is bondage. And please understand, many systems out there will include Christ. He's just not all sufficient. Paul says they all produce bondage. The man who makes keeping law the basis for his hope is in the position of a slave. Why? Because you've got to constantly please your master and every night you wonder, have you done enough to do so? It's bondage, Paul says. If you buy into this, Christ and, Christ plus, if you 
make your hope dependent on anything that you have to do. You're a slave. And you're constantly anxious with, about whether or not your master is pleased with you. Folks, there's a reason why the last word in the Old Testament is curse. 619 laws in Torah. And man is still under a curse. But there are two boys. One's born the ordinary way, Paul says. The other one was born as a result of a promise. What he's saying is that when Isaac was born, Abraham and Sarah didn't throw a party and say, Look what we did. Isaac wasn't born in the ordinary way. His was a supernatural birth that resulted because Abraham and Sarah acted in faith on the promise of God. Let me explain what I mean. When God promised them, he's 99, she's 89, you're going to get pregnant and have a baby, they had to act on the promise. What does that mean? Well, let's be honest. They went into their tent, they turned off the lights, and they do what couples do when they want to get pregnant. It made no rational sense except that's what you do when you believe a promise that if you do it, you'll get pregnant. See, I see personally an analogy here to baptism. I think baptism is often misrepresented in the religious world as a work, and it's often diminished that way. The Bible never once calls baptism a work anywhere. It's always called an expression of faith in the promise of God. Baptism is a response of people to a promise that God can supernaturally bring life into people that were dead. So Paul says, Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, why is all this important? Simple. The Galatian controversy still exists. Is it Jesus plus or Jesus only? Let me remind you folks, what does Jesus mean? The name Jesus. What does it mean? It doesn't mean try harder. It means God saves. And the way of promise is the way of trusting God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's why I agree with uh, the famous old street evangelist, H.A. Ironside, He would often be interrupted and people would say, you say there's just one faith, but we think there are hundreds and hundreds of religions and they all say different things. And he would say, no, they don't really. There's two religions. There's only two. One is the religion of what you have to do. And the other is the religion of what's been done. You see, it makes all the difference in the world who you claim as your mother. The slave child and the free child cannot coexist. So here's where this gets real practical for us. Here's point number one. I think this explains why Sarah's kids will be put down. 
I said a minute ago, why does legalism exist? Because people want it. People want to be under law. The ordinary way appeals to pride. Look, I kept the law better than you did. It appeals to those of us who like to manage religion. And it produces conformity. Because we get upset when somebody out there is doing faith different than the way we want it done. And so there's a great appeal for many people to go the way of Ishmael. And for some, these benefits are worth the price of slavery. See, I want you to understand, folks, who opposes the message of radical grace? The message that you can't save yourself, God had to do it. You're Life in God is a miracle. Who opposes that message? People lost in the world? No. You know who does? Religious slaves. It's our half-brothers who criticize the message of grace. But the prize of liberation is worth the price of persecution. When John F. Kennedy was running for president in 1960, he was in West Virginia. He was speaking to some coal miners, and one of them raised his hand and said, Sir... Is it true you're the son of one of the wealthiest men in America? He says, that's true. Is it true you've had everything you've wanted all your life? He said, that's also true. Is it true you've never done one hard day of work with your hands all your life? He said, that's true. And the miner looked at him and said, well, son, let me tell you. You haven't missed a thing. (laughs) You see, this explains why. And here's where I get controversial. This explains why. Hagar's kids must be put out. I'm going to give you something to talk about on the way home. I grew up in a church where the champions of grace were driven out by the legalist. It should have been the other way around. Paul here is calling for church discipline. People who want to teach a performance-based faith, a pride-filled faith, a faith that produces bondage, a faith that depends on Jesus plus, need to be driven out to protect the inheritance and the freedom of the children of promise. Too many churches and too many individuals make provision. Ishmael. Paul says the only gospel is Jesus only. In fact, he would say a few verses later in Galatians, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Paul is saying, do not Join together what God has torn asunder. The Russians have a parable of a hunter out in the woods and he spots a big bear. He puts the side of his gun on that bear and about the time he's going to pull the trigger, the bear speaks to him and says, Don't do that. Why would you want to shoot me? And the hunter says, Because I want a fur coat. And the bear says, That's reasonable. Let's sit down and talk. All I want is a full stomach. 
So the hunter puts his gun down, and they negotiate. And a short time later, the bear walks off alone. The negotiations were quite successful. He had a full stomach, and the hunter had a fur coat. (laughs) And the moral of the story was, some things weren't meant to coexist. There may be two ways to make boys, but there's only one way to God. Jesus only is our salvation. So we're going to sing about him. We're going to thank him for our freedom. And tonight, if you have never confessed him, if you have never responded in faith by being baptized into him, that's what you ought to do while we stand up and sing.